0: This morning, the meals uh, with Jesus as we continue to look at what Jesus teaches us is centered around the various times in which he eats and profound things are communicated as he eats with his disciples and with others. Picking up in verse 13, this is right after uh, Jesus has been crucified. He has, this is on Easter Sunday morning, Uh, he has risen from the dead, he has revealed himself to a few women and a few disciples and now he reveals himself to two guys on the way, on a road on the way to Emmaus. Pick it up in verse 13. It says this that, that very day, we're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. There were two that were talking about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of these things who were with us, some of those who were with us, went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but in him, but him they did not see." And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them, And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon." And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that with repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to God for his word, man. It's a great text. Um... Have you ever had um, a hope dashed, something that you were really longing for to see happen in your life, have it swiped away? Um, have you ever had a season where you really doubted the goodness and the truth of the Lord? Perhaps it was because those hopes that you had for this life were dashed and it began, led you into a season of doubt about God's goodness and about the promises of his words the man or woman, for example, who um, has been in a serious relationship and they thought that they had found the one. This is the person I'm going to marry, right? And then suddenly they get a phone call from that special one who say, hey, we need to talk. Uh-oh. Another attempt to get pregnant and to carry a baby to term. But something is not right on the ultrasound. And suddenly, this is one of the hopes you had for life is dash. You had dreams of what your marriage would look like, and now it looks like, well, not what you dreamed it would look like. <laughs> you had hoped that the end of college, that your life would look a certain way, that you would get a certain type of job, that you'd get into a certain uh, type of grad program, but instead, you're left doing a what seems to you to be a vapid sales job that leaves you wondering whether where your life went off the rails. Hopes dashed and you leaving you in a place of doubt. For some, it isn't even some grand event. It's simply a long line of seemingly endless uh, drizzle of disappointments that leaving you doubtful and joyless in your spiritual life and the hope sucked right out of you. Hopelessness has incredible power. Hopelessness has incredible power. It is almost like PTSD, he talked about somebody who all of a sudden he brings something to mind of a great sadness and sorrow. And if I, I've seen and experienced this from up here. Where, and using an illustration, maybe like I just used a series of them. And I to particularly touch home with something that has happened in someone's life. I can see their head bow and their eyes fallen, And they would go somewhere else. To some past event to some season of loss. It stops them dead in their tracks. Their thought process is caught up. Well, this is what happens in our text today. Did you catch it? Jesus encounters two men on the road to Emmaus, and he asks them a simple question about what they're talking about and what is their emotional reaction. What happens to them? It says at the thought of answering that question, they stop short. They stop, and they stare at their feet. They look down in sorrow and sadness. The pain in their heart is extreme, so much so that they must stop to compose themselves before they answer. And they don't just stop, they stand still. And the drama in the narrative halts with this moment. And they stood still, looking sad. They confess, in light of this, that there has been this man, Jesus, A man who is a mighty prophet in word and deed, and they related all that had happened to Jesus about the crucifixion and under the the authority of the leaders and their disappointed hopes, what would they hoped this Jesus would be and what he would bring in their lives? There is a despairing profession here. They had a shattered faith. Well, what they hoped Jesus would be, he turned out not to become for them. And because of it, what's going on? They're bailing out of Jerusalem. They're heading for home. They're bailing out of the community of disciples. They are getting out of town. They're going back to what semblance of normal life they could find, to the status quo, yes, to the mundane rigidness of life, to the disappointed, discouraged, faithlessness, hopelessness life with joy sucked out of it where they just kind of simply exist. You see, this is the dangerous point for for so many of us, is that when life has squished you, when the hopes that you had longed for your life and those various things, those tragedies or that constant drizzle of disappointments leads you to a place where it actually attacks your very faith so that you're left as a cynical, dried-out man or woman who has nothing left but the comfort of your doubts. This is the fear, and that you lose faith in our Lord's, That you walk away from the community, that you walk away from the mission, that you go back to life as it was and to the status quo, that this is the fear I have for you in the midst of life's disappointments. But guess what? Jesus doesn't want us to remain hopeless, and Jesus doesn't want that for us, and so Jesus comes to engage, and here's how he does it in this text— Three ways in which Jesus engages with our hopelessness and our doubts in the midst of our disappointments. First, here's what Jesus does Jesus engages hopeless hearts by drawing near. Do you see what he does? This passage in Luke spills over with such abundant grace and care from Jesus. Jesus draws near to these two disciples. Jesus sees them discussing and talking, and he we have, he comes and engages with them. Now it says that their eyes are kept from noticing and recognizing who he is. Now, we don't necessarily know all that's going on there, but we know for a fact that it is God who opens and closes eyes and hearts. And so we know for in this moment, apparently God has closed their eyes. that They don't see him. Perhaps it's because of their circumstances. It's perhaps because Jesus and his glorified self looks too different to them. But what we see is that they don't recognize him. But Jesus decides in this moment to come near to them, to engage with them. And as readers, we have this great advantage that they don't have. They don't know it's Jesus. In the darkness of their doubts, in the darkness of their disappointments, Jesus draws near to them. And we as readers, we have an edge on them, don't we? They don't see it. But you have been given God's word and this fact and this truth that God walks and comes near to his people in the midst of darkness. They don't see it. Their eyes are close to it. But God has explicitly stated that Jesus' draws near to them in order to give us as readers an edge to this truth that God draws near to his people. The biblical narrative gives us as readers the edge, the reader's edge. And what we want you to see here is that in the midst of our darkness and our disappointment, it is often in that moment that God has most clearly and specifically come up next to us, but we can't see it because of our disappointments. Jesus has drawn near to them, and he walks with them in their suffering and their sorrow. Could it be that way for us as well? That perhaps in the moments in which you are most disappointed, and amidst the, the darkness and you can't see or experience God, but he's actually close in that moment, you know, he promises to be so. He shows it and is an example in this text that in seasons of doubt and disappointment that God draws near to you and he is there with you even if you can't see it. Listen to the reader's edge of Luke chapter 24. And trust that such is true for you as well. Jesus walks with them in their sorrow and he is walking with you now as well. He promises this in the Old and the New Testament. For example, in Isaiah 43 verses 1 it says this, fear not, God says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, what? I'll spare you from the waters and the fire? No. In the midst of the disappointments and the difficult things, I will be with you. Fear not, it says in verse 5, for I am with you. Jesus draws near to these two disciples in their disappointment and their hopelessness. But he doesn't simply draw near. He then engages with their hearts at a deeper level. Jesus engages their hearts, and how does he do so? With a simple question and then answering. A simple question. In an answer, it's amazing if you ever to actually think about it. Jesus comes not with extravagant apologetics, but with a mere and simple question, an open-ended question for these men to pour out their souls and their hearts to Him. Open-ended questions. Actually, I was thinking about this this week about how God consistently shows up and asks open-ended questions as a means of convicting and calling people out to speak and engage with Him. Think about this: Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? Is the question. To Cain, where is your brother? To Hagar, where are you going? To the woman with blood, who touched me? There are open-ended questions that God will ask and that Jesus will ask throughout the scriptures, calling us and beckoning us to give voice to our concerns and our sufferings and our sorrows. And then he listens with compassion as these two share their pain and their sorrow, their disappointment and their abandonment and their sense of betrayal over the disappointment of what has happened with Jesus' life. He does not hurry them. In fact, this is one of the longest speeches we ever see before Acts by any of Jesus' disciples. A long and extravagant kind of explanation of all that has gone on and why they are downcast and sorrowful. He doesn't fear their pain, and he doesn't even seem to mind. He will correct their notions, their false notions about who Jesus is, but he lets them give voice to them first. And we need to do the same. And understand that God does the same for us, that he beckons us and calls us that when you are sorrowful and disappointed and you have doubts, that is not the time to run from God, but that is the time in which he most beckons you to come to him with them, to give voice to your fears and your sorrows. And the same way, as we're talking about meals with Jesus and the missional application for this for us, just as an aside would be this, that just as Jesus accompanies men and women in their sorrows, we too need to do the same. That Jesus models here for us that are the future, our future of a daily, ordinary, radical hospitality. What's that all about? To invite people into our homes. We're willing to stop and be with them, with them as they hurt, to, and then to praise God along with them when God shows up. When someone comes into your life with their hurts and their sorrows, the temptation is what when they sit at your table? Oh no. The needs of this person. But listen, first and foremost, it is far better that we shut our mouths and that we listen with care before we open up quickly to what we have to say. By the way, the best counselors, the best counselors are those who take a very, very, very long time to ask lots of questions and to listen very well. And then they use very few words to call out your hearts. They listen well. Jesus listens well before he speaks. And he does speak with conviction and with passion and with intentionality as we're going to see in a minute, but he begins with listening and it begins with questioning. Can you do the same? And guess what he's doing that for you? Beckoning you to himself and for the, so for those who are disappointed and hopeless this morning, God comes and comes near to you and engages your hearts. Second, we see that Jesus he doesn't just simply engage with the hearts of the hopeless By drawing near, but he also ignites hopeless hearts through his words. Jesus draws near, he asks good questions, he listens first, but he speaks. Oh, he speaks. And what does he say? He says, oh foolish ones. It actually comes across stronger than the English necessarily, in the English translation than it definitely does in the Greek. He's simply saying, you don't get it, do you? You haven't read it right. You don't understand, do you, is what he's saying. You are simple men. So let me explain some things to you. He challenges their knowledge and their thinking. And what he challenges with them is that they have false thinking about who Jesus is. In fact, he is saying, you've failed to read the Old Testament correctly. My dad, who I'm sure got this from somewhere else, but when I was despondent and despairing about something and you know, whining and complaining, was, you know, I remember this as a teenager, but the main, main thing he would say in response to such poor kind of articulation about whininess and how bad life was, is he would say this, he said, that is stinking thinking. That is stinking thinking and you need to change the way you think. But I want you to see this. that Jesus does not simply diagnosed their false thinking, but he also diagnoses their hearts because he sees their false thinking as a heart belief problem. Look at verse 25 and then verse 38 in his second encounter with the disciples. In verse 25, he says this, Oh, you foolish ones. But then he says, Why are you so slow of heart to believe the scriptures? He's saying that their intellectual misunderstandings of the Old Testament are actually coming from a place of unbelief that they failed to believe and rightly read the scriptures. And then in verse 35, he comes to the disciples in the room as they're waiting and figuring out what to do. And he shows up amongst the 11 and these two disciples to the Emmaus Road. And he says, why are you troubled? And then he says this, why do doubts arise in your hearts? We tend to think that doubts arise from Darwinian evolutionary intellectual thoughts, and that doubts arise from the academy, and it can definitely do so from skeptical, cynical thinking. But what does it say here about where doubts actually arise from? They arise from the hearts. They can rise up like heat rises up in a house, and they can suddenly shock you with where you're at in your heart. Jesus understands that hopelessness and doubts are not the field merely of the intellectual cynic, but they are the field of every man and woman who sits here, the simple ones who have doubts in their hearts. And our hearts, and yes, our hearts do dialogue with what we know and think and do. You see, the doubts of your hearts will affect the way you think, and the way you think will affect your hearts. And what we see with Jesus is he, he challenges both what we know, the intellectual understanding of the scriptures, but he also challenges their desires, their heart desires. In order to address their hopelessness and doubts, where does Jesus go to address both thinking and heart desires? Where does he go? In both cases, we see both with the two men on the Emmaus Road and then the upper room with the disciples. In both cases, he actually engages with them with the scriptures. In verses 44, he says this to the men, to the disciples. He said, these are my words that I have spoken to you while i was still with you. And that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He points them back to the Old Testament and shows how he fulfills it. Verse 26 and 27, on the Emmaus road, as he say to the two men, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It is important to see that he takes them to the words, but it's also important to see what he does with the words. These men know the words, The problem is, they don't know the word correctly. Their understanding is not correct. For example, they go through this this montage of what it is that they're disappointed about, and they give this history of what has happened with Jesus and what has them so disappointed. What has shattered their hopes? The cross. The cross shattered their hopes. In other words, what we see here is that for them, the cross was a hope dasher, not a hope builder. Their hope was too shallow. They didn't actually have an Old Testament hope. It wasn't large enough. They were hoping. What were they hoping that for Jesus to do? They said, "What did they want Jesus to come do?" We want Jesus to come and redeem what? The world's? No, no. We wanted. We're hoping that Jesus would come to redeem Israel. In other words, what they were hoping for and this Messiah and what they were reading in the Old Testament is that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and he's going to throw off all of our chains and he's going to bring us free from captivity. And by they interpreted under- and understood that to mean that the Romans are going to be out of here and Israel is going to become great again. That's what they thought that meant. And that God, Jesus would change their personal circumstances. is this so often the way we read the Bible? I'm going to read the Bible looking for the Jesus that I want him to be, the Jesus who will change my circumstances and change my life and put the right political people in power and make my life great again in some way, shape, or form. Our hope can be so shallow when you aren't engaged with the actual biblical Messiah, but with the Messiah who is shaped of your own cutting and pasting of the scriptures. In other words, they had picked and choo- chosen which pi- passages in the scriptures that they focused on. And we all have a tendency to do this. We read the Bible from our own lens, but their lens allowed them to not see a Messiah who could actually suffer. In their mind, that the disaster of the cross meant that all their dreams and hopes for what Jesus was going to bring about were crushed. But if they read the Old Testament correctly, they would have seen that their dreams and hopes were shallow. And then indeed, if the Christ, the right Christ, the true Messiah that is communicated in the Old Testament, is one who will come and suffer and die in order to bring salvation, not just to the people of Israel, but to whom? To all peoples. And so let me ask you this. Do you need to be corrected with your stinking thinking because you have a Jesus who is too small That you've lost hope because the hope, your hope is in a Jesus of your own making that the, the circumstances of this world could easily flush him out of your life. Back to the point. Jesus is using the words. He's using the word to bring hope and to bring life. But he doesn't give a one trite word answer, one verse answer, does he? Too often... An evangelical world—the way we have addressed and deal with each other's hopelessness and problems—is we just spout out because of our short attention span, our failure to listen. Is we just kind of give little proof texts? Well, just remember, Jesus is God as a shepherd, and what, but instead, what does Jesus do? Jesus goes to the whole story of redemptive history. And he's saying, listen, you need to cast your hearts and your minds greater and larger because there is a larger story here. Jesus challenges their take on Scripture and essentially says that they have misread the Scriptures because of their desires, because of their hearts. And they have read a small Scripture. But they have missed. They couldn't see the Messiah who would suffer. And so Jesus must correct their thinking and their believing. And he corrects their thinking and believing with a more holistic story. They've told a story, haven't they? Right, Jesus asks, what's going on? And they give this story of like, there's this guy and he was a great teacher and he thought he was gonna redeem Israel and the story ends with his death and Jesus says, no, no, you need a bigger story than that. Let me tell you about the story that started at creation and before that and went through all the law and the prophets, the story that God is weaving in this world. and This is what Jesus wants to tell them about, a more holistic, a more beautiful story, a story of paradoxes and a story that embraces and engages with suffering and sorrow. That is a beautiful story. Matthew Henry, the old patriot and biblical commentator, said this about the, about the gospel in the Old Testament. He says this, a golden thread of gospel grace runs through the whole web of the Old Testament. Christ is the best expositor of scripture and even after his resurrection, he led people to know the mystery concerning himself not by advancing new notions, but by showing them how scripture was fulfilled and turning them to the earnest study of it. You see, some of you have too small of a story because you think your Bible began at Matthew 1 verse 1. And Jesus says the story began in Genesis 1, verse 1, and indeed before that, that before the creations of the world that I say I'm going to do something and I'm going to write something beautiful in this world. Though I don't know exactly where Jesus went to show and correct the disciples' thinking. There's any number of ways, places he could have showed them to show that there would be a suffering servant. But Jesus tells his fellow travelers that nothing has happened apart from what the Old Testament has prophesied would happen. The sufferings of the Christ are appointed path to glory. They're part of a greater story that he is telling. And he shows them that the grace in the Old and the New Testament does not make hard things go away and disappointing things merely go away. But grace in a larger story illumines the, hard, the eternal meaning of those difficult things. Did you follow me there? That by telling a greater story, Jesus is saying this about your dashed hopes. He says this, grace does not make hard things go away, but it illumines how those hard things are actually part of a greater and grander story that you were living into. In other words, for some reason, God may dash your small story so that you might see how your suffering, and your disappointments are a part of a larger story, a larger hope and a greater gospel. In the end, do you see what Jesus does for the hopeless and the doubting? Do you see Jesus' methods? He comes and he listens. He asks questions. And then when he begins to see and understand that their false thinking and their false believing and their false desires, he then engages with them with the whole story of God's word. How do you, how do you encourage greater desires, a greater vision for life by, giving, by telling a better story? and he tells them the story of all of Scripture. He rubs their noses in the Scripture to see the true story, the holistic story of a Redeemer who has been promised from beginning to end. Hope comes from embracing the nature and the means of the Messiah. And for them, their their redemption could not involve suffering, but in God's actual word, it does involve suffering. In other words, to appropriate this what is said about grace and apply it to hope, it means this: Hope does not mean that we ignore the hard things in our life, but hope illumines how the hard things are part of a greater and grander and more beautiful story. And in fact, how the hard things are playing a part of helping us grasp what they are for. And so Jesus comes and he listens. He asks questions and then he brings the word, he illumines himself in the story of the gospel of redemptive history from beginning to end and corrects their thinking and their false believing so they may have hope. Third thing he does, Jesus restores hopeless hearts around a resurrection meal. We'll read verses 28 through 34 real quickly again just to refresh you. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now remember, they at this point, they have not recognized that this is the resurrected Jesus. But when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them in their sight. To them, and, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them. And they gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen, and he has appeared to Simon. And indeed, and they came and said to them, he has revealed himself to us in the breaking of bread." I want to see two things here around the resurrection table. The Jesus reveals his resurrected self to these disciples. First, through a meal, through the breaking of the bread. The turning point of the story is when. As great as the word is, and the word is powerful, it's how it would their hearts to burn. But God in his providence and his sovereignty opens their eyes through the breaking of bread. Now, why was it then that their eyes were opened? Now, if you were here last week, in previous weeks, you would know that, that taking bread and blessing it and breaking it refers to something very specific. It's all allusions to the Lord's Supper and perhaps it is that, perhaps they had seen Jesus do this before on so many occasions where Jesus the guest becomes the host of the meal, and he stands up and he blesses the bread and he breaks it in front of them, and it was the, the remembrance of that, that suddenly Jesus is doing something, they remember something about him that triggered their recognition. It could be that, but it doesn't tell us why, why in this moment that they can see Jesus. But we do know this, is that God opened their eyes. But notice the focus of their testimony, Luke tells us not once, but twice, that Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. We don't necessarily know why, but we can glean some powerful truths from it. That in making known to them the, the, um, himself to the bread, that when Jesus breaks blesses the bread and he breaks it that these are allusions to the Lord's supper and that what he does is he publicly breaks it to encourage us that Jesus shows up in the ordinary and mundane breaking of the bread in God's church in evangelical circles the Lord's supper the Lord's supper has fallen on hard times it is something that we do. It's kind of like something we tack at the end of a service. We don't really understand it. We don't really understand its power in our lives. You know, the reformers in the early church, they actually looked at the Lord's Supper as being spiritual power in your life, that Jesus is actually spiritually present there. And what is encouraging is that Jesus here reveals himself in the ordinary breaking of bread. If he is a living, risen Savior, he can meet with people where he chooses and in the most common places Isn't it bizarre that one of our two sacraments, there's baptism, which uses water, and Lord's Supper uses simple bread and juice. Doesn't that seem so mundane and everyday? And yet he uses these sacraments to give us spiritual grace, to encourage our hearts, to call us to remember what he has done for us. Rather than some grand and glorious expressions, he gives us simple elements to reveal himself to us. When we were getting married, getting ready to be married, Meredith and I did the thing that, I mean, many of you have done. We went to register. But I found out, I found out really good news that Meredith was set to inherit not one, but probably two sets of china from her grandmother. And so I, was, we, I went to the registration process thinking, that's great. We won't have to register for dishes. We can register for more cool stuff. And we go into register, and she goes, well, I've been researching the sets of dishes that we need to get. And I said, wait a second. I thought we had two sets of china coming to us. And she said, no, 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 no. The china is not for everyday use. We need dishes for everyday mundane use, the kind of dishes that we could serve on a Tuesday. Now, if someone comes for a special meal, we pull out the china. Isn't it beautiful, though, that God doesn't necessarily, and even in his glory, that Jesus reveals himself to us in the mundaneness of water baptism and a sacrament of bread and grape juice or wine. That he is willing to show up and reveal himself in power and graciousness in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is the use of which God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself in the Lord's Supper because when he reveals himself there, he points us back to the cost so that we remember what he did to us. He counteracts our doubt by saying, I did this for you. Remember I was broken for you. That life may be disappointing right now. There may be some destructive things going on, but the cross has done amazing things for you. I have shed my blood for you. I have cleansed you. I have made you righteous in my sight. It counteracts our doubts. The Lord's Supper can do that. It can extend you grace. And Jesus reveals himself there. It's a shame that we don't have weekly communion. Perhaps we should institute that. Keep this in mind next week. Keep this in mind. Would you, Would you possibly... Would you possibly come into church next week? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Would you possibly come in expecting that Jesus would reveal himself through a bread and cup? Had a situation a couple of years ago, some actually a number of years ago. This is previous to here, but some time ago, I was engaging with a young man who was having serious doubts about his faith, and he was actually, he was dabbling with dangerous theological ideas. He was discouraged, but he was also dabbling with all kinds of fairly intellectual thoughts, and his spiritual life had grown very dry, and he was fairly cynical, and frankly, he was simply just not believing right in many ways. He was believing false ideas and was actually engaging with the Lord and with the word without much faith and trust. And so I, I went to two pastors because I don't know what I'm doing and I still don't know what I'm doing. And if you, you come to me for a problem, I'm probably going to call like three or four people and be like, I, this is a new one. I don't know what's going on. I'll call like three or four people and then I'll go before the Lord. But I called two pastors to ask them advice. What do I do with this young man? And one of them was a reformed, staunch disciplinarian. And he was like, Is he, is he listening? Is he meeting with you? Is he having is he actually believing and trusting in these false doctrines? If he's doing that, then you need to, you need to bring him under discipline. And all that kind that minister was being kind, and he thought perhaps this would shock and bring sobriety to this young man in his faith. And I thought, perhaps. But the second pastor said this. He said, You know what we do with those who struggle with doubts? We serve them the Lord's Supper. Because those who are struggling with theoretical doubts, they need something tangible to remind them that Jesus came down, that Jesus invaded this world, that Jesus has actually done something in this place, and that Jesus is real and living and active. And so you serve that man the Lord's Supper. I thought the second was better advice. Take the long road Ask him lots of questions. Listen, teach to him the word of God, and share him with him the means of grace in the Lord's Supper. Would you pray that God would reveal himself to you next week? And lastly, I just want you to see this about the resurrection meal, that Jesus reveals to us the nature of the meal, and that gives, should give us great hope. Verse 41, we see it. In, actually, in, in, in the first account with the guys from the Emmaus Road, he breaks bread. Can ghosts break bread? No, the bread would just go right through their hands. Jesus shows up to the disciples, and they're afraid, and they go, He's just a spirit. This is crazy. It's a ghost. We're seeing things. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah? Touch my hands and my side. Oh, and by the way, just to prove to you that I'm not just like some phantom or some holograph, I would like, I'm really hungry. Could you feed me some fish? And they feed him some fish, and then everyone, you know, it's, it's impolite to stare at people who are eating but I think the disciples probably just sat there and stared. He wants broiled fish. What's the significance of that? It's actually deeply significant because what Jesus is teaching them is this, is that when he rose from the dead, he didn't simply rise from the dead spiritually. That as Christians, we don't believe in a mythical, mystery, mystical kind of resurrection where We all just believe that Jesus rose from the dead in our hearts. That Jesus kind of, in a phantom sort of way, come up out of the ground, but the body is still there. But actually, when he rose from the dead, he rose to the dead physically, spiritually, he is all there. It's a real resurrection body. Phantoms don't eat fish. Real people eat fish. You see, this is not an actual, this is an actual thing. This is an actual person. This is an actual God who was risen from the dead. And therefore, the actual Jesus, with an actual body, you can know personally, Now, this tells us something profound about our future, doesn't it? Because it says in the scriptures that we're going to have a resurrection body like his, which means this about your future life. You are not, heaven is not, a bunch of ghostly people, unconsciously disembodied souls floating around heaven, enjoying the sea of nothingness in which we engage with God by two ghosts passing along with one another. That is not what heaven is going to be. You will actually be you. You will be renewed you and glorified you so that people will go, okay, I recognize you. You are radically different, but it's you. So it is with Jesus. And you have a physical body with a sensory experience in heaven. Now, what what does this have to do with your hopelessness and your disappointments? Well, why are we disappointed in this life? You see, so much of our hopelessness and our sense of disappointment and our doubts are based on the momentary loss and disappointments that we experience in this world. The things that we had once hoped for that that no longer are there, and we wonder if we'll ever get to experience them. And but the resurrection says, yes, you will. You see, this hopelessness runs deep because we have this view of life that's this, that this is our one go-around, this is your one turn around the merry-go-round. That if you're that this is your one life in this body, in this world, to experience and sense these things. And if this is your one life, then you better enjoy it. You better go for the gusto. You better get everything you can get. You better experience all that you can get. And when you don't, oh, man, I've, I missed my one chance at the good life. I missed my one chance at the good life. But you know what the physical and material resurrection of Jesus tells us? that what awaits us is a life that is significantly better than anything you can experience in this world. You have a physical resurrection ahead of you, a future that is sensory, which means this. The things that are disappointing about this life, you will experience them with much greater abundance. Now, this is trite, but follow me here. I, I used to play basketball, That's a past tense. Used to play basketball. And at one point in my life, I was actually fairly good at basketball and thought I could make something of my life out of basketball. And like any basketball player, and and in particular of one of my stature, one of the great goals and the great dreams would be to be able to rise up and throw it down. And when I was 15 years old, when I was thin, but strong and young and things worked like the way they were supposed to. the 15th, at the top, I could get a tennis ball over the, over the rim. And I was thinking, man, this is great. I had to hit my growth spurts. I got a couple more years of growth and physical strength. I, by the end of high school, I'm gonna lay one down in a game. It's gonna be awesome. Well, the course of my sophomore and junior year, that didn't happen. I had multiple injuries and I grew thicker and stockier and I never quite reached those heights again. And I had to come to terms. I had to come to terms with many things about myself. But one was I was never going to dunk in a game. I literally, in my twenties, I had dreams about it. These were like they were great in the moment I'd wake up. It was like that awful moment of going, no, it's not true. I still haven't dunked. Well, you know what? I will, you know what? I will never dunk in this life. Unless it's like a pool poop. Unless it's connected to a a trampoline, I will never dunk in this life. But you know what? In heaven, in heaven, I will dunk to my heart's content. (laughs) Some of you have the same experience about dancing, don't you? You and your spouse, well, your spouse, especially if your spouse would love for you to be a great dancer, you have images of yourself whisking your, your partner around the dance floor, and you realize that your feet don't work like that, and your brain and sense of rhythm doesn't work like that, but you know what? And there are some of you, may or some of you who physically can't do it. Johnny Erickson Tata talks about this. She's a quadriplegic. And she says, says, that the greatest thing that she delights that she can't wait for in heaven is that she gets to worship God all every Sunday with her voice and it's so great and she's a great artist but she says what she longs for in heaven is that this thing, this disappointment of her life that she has never been able to dance but in heaven she will dance. Here's what this means. It means you are never gonna miss out on anything really. You're never gonna miss out on anything And so let me say this, some of you have never, you've never gotten married, and you're afraid you're going to miss out. And because of that, you're disappointed, and you question whether God is good and true. Some of you have been married, (laughs) and you wish you hadn't been. And because of that, disappointment has set in your life. Some of you wish you had children, and you never were able to. Say at this age, at my age, in marriage, or children may never happen. But you know what? The the scripture talk about this. What is heaven going to be? The wedding feast of the lamb. And it will be physical. When God will hug you, you will actually feel him. And I don't know what it means to necessarily be married in heaven. But I do know this. That it's saying that this sensory experience of marriage in this world is merely a dim shadow of the greatness of the marriage we're going to experience in heaven. That in parenting in this moment with all its, its glories and its joys, it is merely a dim shadow of what we'll experience in heaven. In other words, it's saying this. Jesus is saying, listen, he comes aside, beside you in your disappointment and in your hopelessness. And your sorrows in this life, and he says, "I'm here to listen, but I'm also here to correct and show how you're living. We, we were living for a greater story, and then he shows you that he has accomplished the grand story. He has made it possible that in his resurrection, you have a future hope that will never be taken away from you, and it is far glorious than all your small hopes in this world could ever take hold of." So you're feeling hopelessness and disappointed this morning. Listen, here, here here's you can do one of two things. You can keep going back and seeking your dreams and try to get back, back on the right track and seek to finally accomplish all those things that you've hoped for and seek to find satisfaction there. Or, or you can live into a larger dream, the story of the gospel and redemptive history in this world that looks forward to a day in which there is hope for things that you cannot even begin to fathom. That's the good news. And Jesus has accomplished such a day. And that one day he will return with a physical body and he will bring you home and he will call you his. And you'll never experience any more tears and any more disappointments and any more sorrow. And you will be, you know what? And actually, you know what? You won't even have to hope anymore. You know, Paul talks about this. He says, in the, it's the, the greatest of these, of these virtues are faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know why? Because faith and hope will go away in heaven. You won't need them. All you experience is hopes fulfilled in the love of God. There's no more future day. You'll experience it perfectly and fully. Man, that's the gracious good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I, I... I pray that we would appropriate this. These, these truths, that you come near, that you've called us into a greater story that, that you're the center of, and you point us to our future hope and resurrection. Lord, I, I, Lord, you know that I, I am not a very resilient person, that I allow the day in and day, day out small stuff. I sweat the small stuff all the time. And then I was man, Friday, when I couldn't find the keys to the car, literally, I was having questions about your goodness. (laughs) And so, Lord, I I pray that your spirit, that you have given us and you have given me, that you would remind me of these truths, that when life is full of its disappointments, that, Lord, I remember that you're there with me, that I remember that you're telling a better story than my my dreams and my disappointments, and (laughs) And that you have a life for me up ahead that is so great. And that it would dissuade and diffuse my daily frustrations. For those who are in something much deeper. Oh, Spirit, I pray that you would fall fresh on them. To press these truths in. To give them life and hope and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.